you want to go ahead and read the thing? I am. Again, it's going to be another short thing because we've got a lot to get to, but Alrighty. read the thing. It sounds like a ghoulish mathematics question. If a ship going five knots carrying a humongous load of explosives collides with a ship going at 12 knots, how many people will it kill? The series of events that led to the largest man-made non-nuclear explosion, a record that still stands today, is a story of a devastated city, thousands of deaths, and the fury of people looking for someone to blame. It is also the story of heroism, hope, strength, and resolve in the face of tragedy. On this episode of Relative Disasters, we're taking a look at the Halifax Explosion of 1917. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, Emergency Management Coordinator for the National Department of Relative Disasters. And I'm his sister, Ella. I am the Chief Ammunition Archivist for Relative Disasters University. Uh, so this is a big one. It is widely considered to be the first international emergency response effort, although our dear listener Andrea and I would like to point to the 1908 Messina and Reggio earthquake in Italy as another candidate for that Ooh, title. Yeah, um, definitely an episode. I also want to thank our dear listener Lynn and the many, many others who suggested this topic for an episode. It's been on the list for a long while, and it's high time we got to it. Yeah, this is an episode that we've kind of talked about doing before, oh, yeah. but it's just so big. It's huge. We always try to shoot for an hour discussion, and I honestly don't know if we can. We're going to squeeze this into an hour, but you know, we'll do our we're best. Gonna, we're going to do it by focusing on the things that we we want to focus on with this show, and you know, there's there's a lot you could focus on. You could focus on one single train driver for an hour. It's it's nuts. Mm -hmm. First of all, I want to start by citing our primary sources for this episode. They're the books. Yay! They're the books 1917 Halifax Explosion and American Response by B. Bede, The Halifax Explosion Surviving the Blast That Shook a Nation by J. Glasner, and The Survivors, The Children of the Halifax Explosion by J. Kitts. In addition, the Nova Scotia Archives and the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic both have resources that were vital for this project, as well as the paper Catastrophe and Social Change based on a sociological study of the Halifax disaster by S. Price. You really dug in with this one. I try to dig in. It's good. Nice. I would also like to thank the filmmaker Catherine Martin of the Millbrook uh, Mi'kmaq community for her insight into the neighborhood of Turtle Grove. Mm. All right. Such an important part of this story, and I feel like it just gets overlooked sometimes. It gets overlooked all the time. I, there, uh, it's, so I'm glad you found some it's a minor footnote, for that. And it shouldn't be, because it's no. deeply fascinating. All right, so we're going to start with the city of Halifax. So Halifax is the capital of Nova Scotia, uh, and it's mm -hmm. its largest city. It's built right up against the Atlantic Ocean, and it has this deep harbor that doesn't ice over and freeze, which is what makes it perfect for travel and transport by ship. It opens wide to the ocean, narrows as it sort of passes through Halifax, and then opens up again into this huge bay called the Bedford Basin. To get from the ocean into Bedford Basin, the ships have to travel through a very narrow section, which is called the Narrows. Uh, which at one point is only half a kilometer wide. Oh, yeah, that seems narrow. It's very narrow. It's quite <laughs> narrow. Ships. The name fits. Um, 
Bedford so Basin uh, is about five kilometers wide. So once the ship okay. gets through the narrow, it's got plenty of place to go. But in the narrows, um, ships traveling through the narrows at that time were directed to stay close to the sides of the channel, passing each other port to port, which essentially keeps mm-hmm. ship with the land on their right and other ships on their left. And they were supposed to not exceed a speed of five knots while in the narrows. As we'll see, that is part of the problem later on. Uh, So World War I was in full swing, and the city of Halifax had seen a huge economic upturn due to the conflict. Canada's military was fully engaged in the war and fighting very valiantly and bravely, I might add. And Halifax was an incredibly important harbor. Because of its naturally wide bay, many ships could be docked and loaded, and because the harbor didn't freeze up, the port of Halifax became a major hub for the North American part of the war effort. You had Canadians, British, and United States troops passing through there in the thousands. Mm. The Canadian and British naval officers had supervising control of the port, and millions of tons of supplies would arrive by train, load up on the ships, and then the ships would depart in military convoys to get troops and armaments to Europe. The harbor was protected by a network of fortified gun emplacements and observation posts that were all manned by British and Canadian military personnel. The major concern was that the Austro-Hungarian battleships might attack, which would shut down the ability of North America to effectively make war. Um, Mm -hmm. So they had all these gun emplacements. They had underwater nets to guard against submarines. And those nets... In 1917, they did? Oh, yeah. Wow. I know. Uh, That was the major reason for the convoys themselves, because... They, they weren't so much worried about major fleet movements. They were worried about getting, mm-hmm. you know, torpedoed by submarines. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, most people don't think about submarines as part of World War One. That seems like such an intrinsic part to World War Two, but not so much one. Right. But both sides had them and both sides used them. All right. So they had these nets underwater to keep submarines from coming into the harbor entrance. And what they would do is open the nets during the day, which would allow surface traffic to come and go. So at this point, the submarines are nocturnal animals? Yes. Well, the thing <laughs> You just is, have to close the gates at night to keep them out of the field? Yes, that that's, that's it, exactly. Okay. Yeah, okay. They, they, they're, they're lunar-powered. I know they're sneaky. Okay, so the north end of Halifax is, is the Richmond neighborhood, which at the time was a working-class neighborhood. It was a lot of homes and schools and churches and industry. Uh, Richmond slopes mm-hmm. down to the harbor, where there were these factories and dry docks and railway yards and naval piers. So uh, Richmond was a huge part of getting all the goods and services onto these boats. Mm -hmm. North of Richmond was the black community of Afriqueville, Mm -hmm. which was a really interesting, uh, the founding of which was really interesting, and I encourage our dear listeners to look into it. It was really neat. Now, across the harbor was the neighborhood known as Dartmouth, which included the Mi'kmaq village of Turtle Grove. So we're going to take a quick sidebar into who the Mi'kmaq are. Uh, They're also sometimes called the Mi'kmaq. It seems like the further south you go, the more they are referred to as Mi'kmaq and not Mi'kmaq. Yeah. Um, But they are one of the First Nations people of Canada, indigenous to the Atlantic coasts along Canada and northern Maine. Uh, The Turtle Grove community was part of the larger Tufts Cove neighborhood in Dartmouth. Tufts Cove was basically a very wealthy guy named Tufts came in there and bought a bunch of land. Um, hey. And he really didn't like that the Mi'kmaq were living 
in his neighborhood, um, they were involved in a really ugly dispute over their right to live there. They had, the Mi'kmaq had settled there generations ago and mm-hmm. had largely accepted being kind of pushed into a smaller and smaller area by the white settlers until finally those settlers came after the last bit of land that they had, which was Turtle Grove. Mm-hmm. The main antagonists of this movement were the Tufts family, who, again, had purchased most of the land, and the Farrell family, who owned a bunch of land and just wanted them out. Farrell wrote to the Department of Indian Affairs in January of 1917, and the quote I'm going to... Uh, to share with you is is as follows quote i wish to know what you are going to do in reference to the removal of those indians who are a nuisance a source of annoyance and most destructive individuals end quote yeah he he was he was a hoot at parties i'm sure he sounds wonderful he does uh sounds like a great neighbor as well yep i'm Uh, sure everyone had fun you know trick-or-treating every year just having the worst secondhand embarrassment for all those words together. Oh yeah, no, it's 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 a lot. There's a lot. There's to unpack a lot to unpack here. in that one statement. But that's sort of what they were dealing with at the time. Okay. Meanwhile, every time this came up, the Mi'kmaq cited the law that allowed them to live there. Hey. And basically, just ignored the uh, hugely awful people living right next to them. Good for them. Yeah. All right. So, we are going to talk about our two ships now. Obviously, there are many more than two ships traveling in and out of Halifax, but these are the two that uh, are directly responsible for the explosion itself. We're going to start with the SS Montblanc. The Montblanc was a French cargo steamship. It was being employed as a tramp steamer to carry all sorts of stuff all over the world. During World War I, uh, the Mont Blanc was purchased by the CGT French Line, a French state-owned corporation that was in charge of France's wartime shipping. Mm -hmm. Now, what it was carrying was a huge amount of explosive material. See, she's built as a freighter. Yeah. She's like 20 years old. Yeah. She's not... A fancy ship? No, but she doesn't need to be a fancy ship. She's just going to carry stuff from one place to another. Think about it like, you know, it's somebody's old Ford F-150. They're going to pick up your stuff from one place and drive it to another. No problem. No worries. Okay. Okay. That's fine for things like hay. Yep. Hay, maybe a couch or two. Would you put your explosives in there? Actually. In that Ford F-150? Actually, yes. If this Ford F-150 were the SS Mont Blanc, I would. Because the Mm -hmm. Mont Blanc actually was a good ship. Yeah, it was 20 years old at the time. It was it was actually 18 years old at the time. It was launched in 1899. Oh, my bad. Excuse yeah. me. Excuse <sighs> me. <laughs> but it was launched in 1899, so, you know, 1917, it was it was 18 years old and it was in good working operation. Uh, it was not okay. a ship that was, you know, leaking all over the place or uh, had had major problems. Also, its crew was very, very steady. It was it was captained by a man named M. Lamedec, and the harbor pilot in charge of the ship for that day was a man named Francis Mackey, who was an incredibly well experienced harbor pilot. He was okay. Uh, he was the kind of guy you wanted to have driving your ship full of explosives. Okay. Okay. Because he 
he knew all the safety protocols and he knew you know he took it very very seriously he was not going to go flying through the narrows he was going to obey the speed limits he was going to do all the stuff he was supposed to do stay to the right yep and stay to the right <laughs> okay <laughs> which which is very important because that's what winds up and it is a key part of yep, the story it is okay now Mackie had asked for special protections for mm-hmm. the uh, for the Mont Blanc because of what it was carrying. He wanted what did he have in mind there? He wanted a guard ship. He wanted to have okay. a ship that would travel in front of them and warn off other ships and warn them oh. if there was another ship in the way. And like a bouncer. And also, yeah, basically, he wanted he wanted a crowd clearer in front of him. Okay, and, that seems reasonable. Uh, and and they didn't give him one. The, um, the ships were busy. <laughs> okay, the fact that it was busy <laughs> makes it seem like... I know, I know, I know. An extra reason to have Yes, one. Okay, yes. Okay. okay. Busy, busy harbor, ship full of dynamite. Oh, it's not just bouncer. dynamite. It's not just dynamite. The, the Mont Blanc is loaded with TNT, yes. Mm-hmm. It also has a ton of... Of picric acid, mm-hmm. which is sounds pleasant. Oh yeah, it's it's an explosive. <laughs> okay, it is a strongly <laughs> nitrated organic compound, meaning oh that clears it up. Thank you. It blows up real good. Okay, and that's with the dynamite and yep. it's it's sitting in crates with the dynamite, uh, not literally <sighs> like in the same crate with the dynamite, but it's near the dynamite, and okay. they also have gun cotton, which is. Oh, the super flammable stuff. Exactly. Gun cotton is fantastic because uh, it is a replacement for gunpowder in firearms at the time. So mm. you needed you needed your gun cotton. Now, also, on the deck of the ship itself was a huge amount of barrels of benzol. So benzol uh, was fuel. Okay. Uh, it, it's what you get when you when you combine benzene and toluene, and benzol is uh, it, it's not just fuel for vehicles. It's it's a high octane fuel, so it's really really important for the war effort. Okay. So on your ship loaded up with explosives, more explosives, incredibly explosive things, and gasoline. This was a non-smoking ship, right? I'm not sure. There are no pictures <laughs> of the captain puffing away on a cigar, but one would hope. Oh, except they have a steam-fired engine. Never yep. mind. Steam-fired engine, <laughs> but but such a bad idea. They okay. have well, they okay. have so they have internal walls that would keep any stray. Uh, heating elements from the engine itself away from any mm-hmm. of the cargo. Okay. So unless, you know, unless the the steam engine, which is coal-fired, by the way, blows up or something. So they something. also have a ton of coal on board. Yeah, they have some coal. Is they that... have some coal so okay. that they can move, you know. Just to even things out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Great. I love this. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Great. This is a, perfect. What a fun trip. I definitely would have signed on for this, yep. and uh, I'm so happy she had an uneventful trip. Yes, yeah. Well, she had an uneventful trip there. Yes. So she was coming into Halifax because of the convoy system. Mm-hmm. So obviously what she has is incredibly important to the war effort. Under normal circumstances, okay, before the war, a ship like that wouldn't have been allowed into 
the the bay itself. Okay, it would have been which is packed with people. Yes, and other ships, right? And, and houses. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. It wouldn't have been allowed into the bay, but because of the protection concerns, the British Admiralty allowed it to come in because they were worried about you know if we leave this ship anchored outside, waiting mm -hmm. to join the convoy. What if tonight's the night that, you know, the submarine shows up and puts a torpedo in the side of it? So they, they allowed it to come into the bay. Okay. On the other side of the bay, already in Bedford Basin, we have the SS Emo. Okay, so the SS Emo, spelled I-M-O, not E-M-O, just to be clear. <laughs> uh, it just makes me think of emo kids. It, yes, you know, the hair swept across the forehead. I've got my black eyeliner on. I hate everything. Yes. Um, okay. So the Emo was launched in 1889, same year as the Mont Blanc, They're uh, as the Runic, and then was renamed the Emo in 1912. Uh, she was a ship that was uh, operated by Norwegians uh, as part of the Belgian Relief Commission. So she was there hmm. to be loaded up... Um, with supplies. Now she wasn't she didn't have supplies. She was sailing in ballast right now. She was supposed to okay. go sail down the coast to New York, load up supplies, join a convoy, head across the Atlantic. Okay, and she's a passenger ship, right? I mean she's carrying freight and people, right? Um it, it's a small ship, okay? So it's only it, it's it's a cargo liner. It's only mm -hmm. designed to carry like twelve passengers. So Oh yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Oh a teeny ship. Yeah yeah, yeah. Gotcha. it's a small ship. But the problem is she was supposed to leave on December 5th, mm -hmm. and she had spent two days waiting. Uh, the ship arrived on December 3rd and spent two days waiting for its coal to show up. Mm. So she was supposed to leave on the morning of December 5th, okay. but the coal load didn't arrive until late in the afternoon. So she's behind schedule. Oh, she's, she's behind schedule, and because the coal doesn't show up until late in the afternoon, what happens at night? those anti-submarine nets get snapped closed so she couldn't leave okay so she's, so she's over a day inside. behind and 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 full of coal and sit, yes yeah, she's all loaded up with the coal that she needs but she's sitting Great. in bedford basin and wanting to head down the coast all right mm -hmm. so there are two things wrong with this all right so the emo is a weird looking ship it is 430 feet long but it's only 45 feet wide, okay? See, that seems too big for me. It's a stick. Than what you're describing. It's a it's stick. It's a stick. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, it's, it's long and thin. And she is propelled by a propeller and a rudder. But the problem is because she's sailing right now in ballast, mm -hmm. both of those are nearly out of the water. Great. Because she's not loaded up. Right. So what they had was they had a transverse thrust, okay? So... She swings left when she's headed straight mm -hmm. and swings right when she's headed in reverse. Okay. Which means if you've ever seen like a 1970s cop movie when the cops are taking the hard corner and they squeal <laughs> out and fishtail. Yeah, they do a little drift. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> what the emo is like in tight quarters, okay? Oh, honey. She's okay. real hard to maneuver and needs to be taken slow right so the morning of december 6th at about 7 30 the guard ship acadia gives the emo clearance to leave bedford bay right so it's it's leaving and she's the basin. behind right so she wants to she wants to like speed out of there she wants to get out of there because she's behind schedule 
right? Right. And just like those cops who need to catch the bad guy in the 1970s cop movie, she's going way too fast to make those corners. Oh, dear. Here's, okay. here's what winds up happening. She gets the all clear to leave, and her pilot is a guy named Bill Hayes. Now, Bill Hayes, while not as experienced as Francis Mackey, has been doing this for a while, and he figures they're going to make up all their time ripping down the coast, but... He wants to get them out of the harbor as fast as possible so that they can be, you know, on their way. They, the, the crew is sick of this. The captain's mm-hmm. getting real salty about having to stay there. Bill Hayes wants to go and home. And Bill Hayes wants to go home. <laughs> Pedal to the metal, gentlemen. So. All right. The first thing that happens is another tramp steamer, the SS Clara, is coming up. This is this is before they even hit the Narrows. It's coming up okay. the, the harbor, okay? And it's on the wrong side of the harbor it came out of the narrows and basically pulls a hard left so it's heading down uh the wrong way and through signals both pilots pass starboard to starboard so the emo passes this guy on the right okay okay and then the tugboat stella maris comes up the harbor in basically mid-channel and so the, okay. the emo has a choice of, are you going to bear left or bear right? You're already aimed right. You know that your ship is going to drift left eventually anyway. So what's the mm-hmm. harm in passing this guy on the right as well? Sure. Right. Yep. What's the harm? Now, the captain of the Stella Maris sees the emo coming and sees that they are, they're already going about seven knots and they haven't hit the narrows yet. And what's the speed limit? Five Five knots. knots. And so he signals them. He's like, hey, you guys are going too fast. And then pushes the Stella Maris closer to the western shore to avoid what he saw as an accident, which he was correct. Okay. (laughs) The emo would have rammed right into the Stella Maris. I just, I hate this so much. Oh, it sucks. This whole part is just no fun. Why couldn't they have just slowed down there in this incredibly difficult, dangerous area? And they're driving their already unmaneuverable and an hour on either side isn't going to make a damn bit of difference like what are you doing it's that guy who speeds to get past you and then slams on his brakes at the red light it's like good you got to the red light two seconds before i did well done sir well done (sighs) all right okay so the next thing that happens is they hit the narrows and the best estimates from horatio brannan which is a fantastic name who was the captain Mm -hmm. of the stella maris uh, is that by the time the emo makes it to the Narrows themselves, they are probably going almost 12 knots. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Which is nearly full speed for the emo. Now, his he's guessing based on, like, looking at it. There, there are no measurements right. of exactly how fast the emo was going. It's known that the emo was going a lot faster than five knots. Maybe we could just say too fast. Super too fast. Is going super, super too, too fast. fast. That's what that that's the technical term. Okay. So without a guard ship in front of them to let them know that this idiot is driving on the wrong side of the highway at ninety miles an hour, the Mont Blanc and the Emo see each other when they are about a kilometer and a quarter away from each other. Oh geez, that's too close. It's, as we learned on our Andrea Doria episode, yep. that is way too close. It's way too close, and they're no. and they're going way too fast. Now Francis Mackey. Hits the whistle. Right. And he signals them, dude, we have the right of way. Please get over to your own side of the Narrows. And the emo responds 
with the signal blast that says, we're not leaving this position. Okay. So this is, again, the highway equivalent. You're driving on the correct side of the road. Dude pulls into your side of the road going 90. You flash your lights at him, and he flashes his lights back at you. This. So at this point, it's inevitable. At this point, there's, they're, they're screwed. If the emo okay. had pulled hard starboard, mm-hmm. none of this would have happened. If the emo had slowed down, none of this would have happened. However, uh, as we'll find out later, everything is the Mont Blanc's fault. Okay. The captain at this point takes control of the ship because uh, at this point the pilot, these decisions are above the pilot's pay grade. Yes. So the captain orders the Mont Blanc to go to full stop and angle to, to starboard, basically pulling himself to the left in the hopes that maybe the emo will see what they're doing and pass them on the right. So again, it would be another starboard to starboard pass. It would be way too close. Mm-hmm. It would be way too dangerous. But if the emo does what, what the Mont Blanc's doing, they might maybe scrape a tiny bit, but they won't crash. Okay. So he signals, he signals the emo and the emo signals back. They're not moving. The emo does cut its engine. However. Okay. Okay. It's just so hard to picture. Oh yeah, but they're still going way too fast. The amount of decision making that's going on yeah. here. We don't know what... For reasons that will soon become obvious. We don't know what Bill Hayes was thinking. We don't know why he kept signaling that he wasn't going to get out of the way. It might have been that he didn't feel he could safely steer to the correct mm-hmm. lane. It might have also been, I mean, not knowing what is what the Mont Blanc is carrying. It might have been that he just didn't think it was a huge deal. I don't know. At this point, the last decision is up to the Mont Blanc. Their momentum is going to carry them into each other. And Mackie has to make a split-second decision. He either grounds the ship, steers Mm -hmm. into the, you know, into the literal ground of Halifax to stop the ship, or he tries to cross cross bows with the emo okay he does not ground the ship because he's concerned that the shock of striking coastline might ignite something and he's right reasonable yep Mm -hmm. so the last ditch effort is to cross bows so what he does is basically he steers hard to port and the two ships are almost parallel to each other Mm -hmm. and then for reasons we don't know the emo reverses its engines now we talked about that weird transverse thrust thing that they had going on because they were in ballast and they didn't have enough weight in the thing and the propellers were out of the water so what happens when they go into reverse is the prow of the emo swings right into the mont blanc and they collide now there's very little damage and everyone was fine what happens is the barrels of benzol that are on the main deck topple over and a few of them break open and a few of the ones that break open flow that fuel into the hold and then the emo restarts its engines to disengage to back up from the ship it just hit which creates sparks which ignites the benzol and then you've got an out of control fire and the captain orders the crew to abandon the ship. Everybody jumps into lifeboats. Everybody starts rowing for the shore, screaming to the other vessels, 
to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. Now, a bunch of citizens of Halifax start looking out their windows or gathering on the shore because they've seen the accident and they're like, holy cow, this is crazy. So nobody really knows what's on board the Mont Blanc. The only people that know what's on board of the Mont Blanc are the are crew the of the, the Mont Blanc. And they are, screaming. they are screaming, trying to get people to back off. Mm -hmm. But there's no way to hear them. <laughs> there's no way to hear them. The lifeboats... I just... I hate this so much. Instead of heading for the near shore, <clears throat> the Richmond side, the lifeboats mm -hmm. are, are rowing as hard as they can towards the Dartmouth shore. So... A few people looking on would think, wait, why are they rowing away from the safer option to get back on shore? Mm -hmm. But they're doing it to warn people? They're, no, they're doing it because they know it's going to explode. And they know that if they're anywhere near it, they're, they're going to go with it. So okay. the Stella Maris, remember them? Yes. They start steaming back up towards uh, the fire to try to, to use their fire equipment. Mm -hmm. They realize that the fire is too intense. They realize that they're they're not they're not going to be able to pull it out. Uh, a whaler ship from the HMS High Flyer and a uh, a smaller ship belonging to the HMCS Niobe also pull mm -hmm. up alongside. And what they decide to do is they're going to secure a line to the stern to pull it away from oh. the pier because they're worried that the pier will catch on fire. Okay. And then the ship explodes. And this has been very. It's not a lot of no. time. Between they collided the at 8.45. The ship explodes uh -huh. at 9.04. Oh, so it's like just enough time to get people to run there to yep, try and put it to out. to run to try to help, and then kaboom. And people in Dartmouth to go outside and take a look. Oh, people in Dartmouth are down looking. People in Richmond are out looking. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. School children mm. on their way to school have stopped and are watching. Hate this so yep, much. It sucks. Okay. 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 The blast wave comes out of the explosion at more than a thousand meters per second. Jeez. Temperatures exceed 5,000 degrees Celsius, 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and a pressure equivalent to thousands of atmospheres accompanies the detonation. Okay. Iron is instantly heated to molten, and they displaced enough water from the explosion to expose the floor of the harbor. Jesus. Yeah. I had not heard that before. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Which then causes a 60-foot tsunami. Oh, just to make everything a little bit yep. better. Okay. Okay. So, you've got a rain of white-hot iron falling down mm -hmm. on Halifax and Dartmouth. You've got this shockwave mm -hmm. that not only knocks everybody off their feet, but is knocking down buildings. Yep. The Mont Blanc's forward gun, which was a 90 millimeter gun, landed five and a half kilometers away from the site. Oh. Yeah, with its barrel melted away. And, oh, and what was left of the Mont Blanc's anchor, which weighed mm -hmm. half a ton, landed three and a quarter kilometers south. So when this thing exploded... The gun blew north, the anchor blew south. I mean, we're talking three okay. and a half miles north is where the gun lands, and two miles south is where the anchor lands. So nobody in that basin, nobody in those areas is safe. No. No, no, no. Nobody's safe. Nobody's safe. Okay. The emo itself gets carried all the way up onto the shore by the tsunami. Yeah, I hate this too. It's kind of hard to go through all this stuff. It's just 
it's destruction on a scale that we don't usually talk no. about, and it's hard to know where to start, especially with the human toll. Yeah. So the Stella Maris, the ship that, first of all, tried to point out that the Emo was going too fast, and second of all, sailed to try to help. Of the 26 <laughs> men on board, 21 of them are killed instantly. Yep. Uh, the captain's son, who was the first mate, gets knocked into the hold by the shockwave and survives. Mm-hmm. Only one crew member of the Mont Blanc is killed. Really? Yep. They were out in the Those lifeboats. Those dudes in the lifeboats. And they survived. Broken arms, How? broken legs, carried by the tsunami, but they survived. That is amazing. In fact, the, the sailor who died was a man named Yves Kikiner, and he may mm-hmm. have actually died from blood loss after being hit by the debris. Mm. However... A lot of that going around. However, over 2,000 people were killed in the explosion Ugh. and its aftermath. Some 9,000 were injured, and around 250 people lost their eyes... So because of the shrapnel and glass shards from windows. Okay. Yep. I just I've read that in several yeah. places, and I was never clear about why why they the were blinded. People's eyes yeah. were so affected, as opposed to I don't know, the rest of your body. Yeah. Well, people were out looking, and then all of a sudden, it's like if you're looking through your window, and then your window implodes on you. Gonna get some. You're in gonna your get eye, some yeah. glass in your eyes. Absolutely. That is why I wear a helmet and safety goggles at all times. At all yep. times. Yeah. Uh, one of the firefighters, a man named Billy Wells, was thrown away from the explosion, and survived nude. Really? Yes. All of his clothing was destroyed in the explosion. <laughs> he was on the fire engine Patricia, which okay. was headed down to the harbor. He was able to see and describe what had happened to the people in the Richmond district. Many people were hanging out of their windows dead. Mm. Many had been decapitated. Many had been thrown into the telegraph wires overhead. Mm. Eventually, somebody gave him a, it was like a, a raincoat, and he, uh, he was able to tell his story. And despite all this, it could have been worse. Could have been worse. Sure. I mean, it could always be worse. That is, I think, our main takeaway from this podcast. Except for our heroic railway dispatcher. Yes. All right. So this now guy, to the good part. Vince Coleman, Patrick Vincent Coleman, he went by Vince. There was a rail yard that was about 750 feet from Pier 6, which was pretty much where the explosion happened. Vince Coleman and his co-worker, William Lovett, in the panic, started to flee. Mm-hmm. And then Coleman remembered that there was an incoming passenger train. Oh, hey. He returned to his post and he sent out an all-stop telegraph message to the train. The Maritime Museum of the Atlantic reported the train, the, the telegraph message as, quote, hold up the train, ammunition ship a fire in harbor making for Pier 6 and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. End quote. Why are these telegrams always so incredibly, they're well-worded, they're concise, right? and they're, like, deeply upsetting. I feel like we've come across this before. It's like, it's like Twitter. It's just, you only have so many characters. Nobody is that articulate on Twitter as no, they're nobody an is. explosion going on. No, no. Sorry, no. we're just not built like that anymore. So Coleman halted that train. That train gave the all-stop to all the other incoming trains around Halifax, and everybody stopped. 
which That's saved good, right? So many lives. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Coleman was killed at his post with the explosion. <sighs> so now we come to the other part of this. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, there was the Mi'kmaq settlement in Turtle Grove. Mm-hmm. It was flattened by the explosion, and of the the forty or so people living there at the time. Only approximately six to eight of them survived. Oh, jeez. And these were all family groups. These were mm-hmm. all, you know... Families. Yeah, families. Yeah. Including uh, the famous Jerry Lone Cloud. Uh, so Jerry Lone Cloud, quick sidebar here, because I love this dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a... He's a hard guy to nail down. Uh, He was uh, a member of the Mi'kmaq, Mm -hmm. and he was awesome. (laughs) Those are the only things you really need to know about him. Uh, But he was a traveling entertainer, an ethnographer, a cultural priest, a medicine man, Mm -hmm. if you will. And his oral memoirs, which were, were taken down from 1923 to 1929, were largely... If not largely responsible, incredibly important in saving a lot of the Mi'kmaq oral histories and legends. And uh, thanks to Ruth Holmes Whitehead at the Nova Scotia Museum in Halifax, uh, she compiled all those into a book in 2002 called Tracking Dr. Lone Cloud, Showman to Legend Keeper. It is a fantastic book, and it is basically... I want to read that right now. That sounds It's amazing. so good, my dude. <laughs> uh, and it's it's basically the first Mi'kmaq memoir. Hmm. Dr. Lone Cloud. He, he styled himself Dr. Lone Cloud while he was working in Wild West shows and uh, medicine shows. Okay. Including Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. Sure. Uh, so he was living in in the the Turtle Grove area Mm -hmm. at the time of the explosion. And he lost two of his daughters and one of his eyes in the explosion. But he survived to talk about it and to talk about the uniquely Mi'kmaq perspective on the explosion. Mm -hmm. So, now we get into the rescue efforts because this is where we have uh this is this is the real good stuff here so neighbors and co-workers of halifax basically immediately spring to action they start dragging people out of basements they start digging people out of collapsed houses the surviving firefighters and policemen start jumping in and their mayor is gone <laughs> which is not a good thing their mayor is gone is he yeah, dead the mayor, or just the mayor of, of halifax is out of town Okay. So before the explosion, basically social services were a non-thing. Sure. Like, you didn't have social services. Classic early 20th century. Exactly. You had private charities who would help people. But it wasn't the government's responsibility to help you. Again, the mayor is away, and leadership of the immediate response falls to Deputy Mayor Henry Colwell. So he's got, like a tiny police force and fire service Mm -hmm. and the fire chief had been killed. Yikes. So there's no chain of command on the firefighter size of things. Okay. However, he has one huge advantage. All of that military personnel that were in the city. Oh, that's right. Okay. Those guys have an intact chain of command and there are a lot of them. So even though he is a civilian leader who has no 
authority over them, mm-hmm. he basically starts ordering around the military units. And the crews from the warships that survived the blast come ashore and start helping. Ships that sail into the harbor and see what's happened dock and start helping. The major, the two major problems are basically everybody's home has just been destroyed. Right. You know, outside of all the dead, everybody's home has just been destroyed. And we are going to have a blizzard. Of course, because yep. this day can only get better. Also, yes. um, <laughs> do you have any idea what the services were like for those 10,000 people who were injured? Uh, like, they, they couldn't were, be taken care of at the hospital, right? They were mostly triaged, basically in the street. Oh, God. The the, the railway workers t- took to the rail yards and rescued mm-hmm. people. The firefighters and police took to the streets. The military took to the military outposts first and then to the streets. So, basically, it was just everybody pinch, pitching in. The other the other thing was that a lot of the wounded were actually evacuated out of the city by train by the yeah. surviving trains mm-hmm. to go to the nearby city of Truro. And finally, community facilities like especially YMCA buildings mm-hmm. became emergency hospitals and the medical students that were living in Halifax, you know, kind of got a slap on the shoulder, you're a doctor now. Get in <laughs> Congrats. there. Congrats. Yep. The city of Truro sent a rescue train to pick up anybody who was injured. Mm -hmm. That train came, took a ton of people on it. It left Truro at 10 a.m. and it was back on the tracks in Truro by 3 p.m. So So their rail line was really, really efficient. So you could still get in and out of Halifax. You could still get in and out of many of the rail yards. The rail yards that were right on the harbor were were blown to pieces, but you could still get in and out. It wasn't it wasn't like the Peshtigo fire where people were isolated. You could get in and out. Okay. Uh, Plus, the military had the full authority to commandeer automobiles. So if you had an automobile at the time, are there a lot of automobiles in 1917 Halifax? There were enough to serve as emergency transport, okay. absolutely. All right. And the the road school, mm-hmm. which was just outside of the blast area, became a morgue. Ooh. Yeah. And then people started showing up from all across Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. People were driving there, taking the train. Doctors were coming. Nurses were coming. Uh, construction workers were coming. Sure. Architects were showing up. Anybody who could who could do anything, were Mm -hmm. flooding to Halifax. And one of the major hubs of relief for this was Boston. Many of the medical workers that were coming up the coast from Boston Mm -hmm. uh, were all of the relief efforts were actually organized in Boston. So it uh, it was a big deal. You know, basically all these disparate groups of people would come to Boston, Boston would organize them and send them up to Halifax. Yeah, there's not actually that much of a difference, I guess, between Boston and (laughs) Canada. Yeah, not really. (laughs) It's a train ride. And they're both harbor cities. Right. So they knew how to get people in and out of harbor cities. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, interesting. Yeah, huge amounts of outpouring of supports from uh, Canada and all across Canada, all across the United States. The Halifax Relief Commission mm-hmm. uh, was organized to make sure that people had uh, transportation, food and shelter, medical costs, funeral costs. Uh, and that commission actually lasted until 1976. Wow. Helping with reconstruction, relief, and pensions to the survivors. That's so interesting. Yep. Huh. Children, school children who survived the blast 
were pressed into service as messengers and couriers. Yeah, you could do that back then. Also, they had a bunch of kids who would go around to houses and essentially, like, listen very carefully and could get into places that the adult-sized rescue workers couldn't. You can't see uh, and, my face right now, but I But it's horrified, yes. <laughs> really uncomfortable with that. But I guess this is the same era where children are dying in thread factories. So. Exactly. So they, were, they weren't... And it's important to know that they weren't ordered to do this by anybody. It's a group of school kids just took it on themselves to go try to find, essentially, their friends. Yes, but... Yeah. Okay. And speaking of their friends, we do need to get into uh, the actual... Uh, death toll here. So, of the 2,000 or so people that were killed in the blast, mm -hmm. approximately 500 of those were children. That sounds really high. Yep, it's Do you almost know why a that quarter. Is? They were on their way to school. Mm. And, you know, kids would walk to school and and, uh, and they were just, yeah. Uh, especially the, the children stuff was the hardest thing for the medical and rescue staff to, to deal with. Of course. Yep. Ugh. And I then, of course, imagine. 16 inches of snow hits Halifax. Sure. Well, it put the fire out, didn't it? Yep. Puts the fire out, and it also stops the trains, and the telegraph lines get knocked down again. <laughs> so the Jeez. telegraph lines get knocked down by the explosion, they go mm -hmm. out and fix them, and then they get knocked down again. Because of the cold and the fact that it was a full whiteout blizzard, they had to suspend uh, searches for the survivors. But, as you said, it did help put out the fires. So that's great. Silver linings. We're all Silver about linings. that. The damage in Dartmouth was very heavy, but since it wasn't as densely populated as Halifax, mm -hmm. only about 100 people died on the Dartmouth side of things. Nova Scotia Hospital was the only hospital in Dartmouth, mm -hmm. and it took on survivors as soon as they started showing up. And we mentioned the community of Afriqueville, mm -hmm. which was on the southern shores of the Bedford Basin. They were spared the direct force of the blast by a really interesting geographical phenomenon called the shadow effect. Uh, basically, <laughs> the ground south of them was raised... Mm -hmm. So the explosion, kind of, if you if you think of the explosion as a wave, it sort of curled up and over them. And what about the actual wave, the tsunami? The tsunami wasn't, uh, it didn't go far enough to hit them. However, oh. five, five people did die, and because their homes were all shacks, mm -hmm. uh, they were heavily, heavily damaged. Um, mm. The lovely combination of persistent racism and the people with the money thinking that Afriqueville should be demolished so that they can put more factories there uh, resulted in the people of Afriqueville uh, getting no police support or fire protection. Oh, man. Despite the fact that they pay city taxes, they no. also had no water mains or sewer lines. And none of the relief funds uh, were invested in their community to reconstruct. Don't love that. Nope. And uh, this is the other part of the Mi'kmaq story, mm -hmm. uh, as well as Afriqueville. Were they able to rebuild? They were not, because after the shockwave, according to the historian Jacob Reams, mm -hmm. there is the great quote of, quote, the big thing that happens is the thing that doesn't happen. 
the school doesn't get rebuilt, the settlement is prevented from being rebuilt, end quote. Basically, what those neighbors were, uh, were wanting mm-hmm. uh, happened. The explosion basically helped them raise the community to the ground. And uh, so the Mi'kmaq resettled. Uh, many of them resettled north uh, around the area of Albro Lake, where they still met with some of that good old-fashioned, you're-not-wanted-here racism. Mm-hmm. But uh, some did actually remain in Halifax and uh, just moved to different areas. The school at Turtle Grove was leveled. Mm-hmm. All the students inside of it uh, were killed. And the principal was on his way to the school to try to get them out and was killed in the blast as well. Oh, jeez. That's the, the end of the story of the Turtle Grove settlement. It's, it's a big black mark in terms of the, uh, the, the relief efforts, was that both Turtle Grove and Afriqueville were deliberately, I think we can say that, overlooked mm-hmm. in the reconstruction efforts. Especially considering how much was pouring into the city at that point. Yeah. It seems oh, yeah. like everybody on the east coast of the continent for hundreds yep. of miles in every direction wanted to pitch in and help. Yeah. All right. So the next thing that happens is that there is a kangaroo trial. Well, it's a trial. Um, <laughs> we're going to gloss over this, but basically the people wanted somebody to blame. I mean, um, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, first, this the first is not theory, like a natural disaster. This is no. a series of bad decisions. I would want somebody to be responsible. So the first theory is that the helmsman of the emo mm-hmm. is arrested on suspicion of being a German spy. Um, when when uh, they searched him, they turned up a letter that was written in German. Actually, it was written in Norwegian. Nobody knew either language. Very similar um, language, yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Not at all. So also, people of German descent started to get rounded up. Um, however, once the real cause of the explosion became known, it was obvious that it wasn't an attack of the Germans. Mm-hmm. So they convened uh, an investigation, the Reck Commissioner's Inquiry. They convened a judicial inquiry on it and blamed... Which, which ship do you think they blamed for it? I think they blamed Just the emo. Fun. Yeah, because that would make sense, right? Right. No, they blamed the Mont Blanc. Well, she was carrying all that. I mean, don't carry explosives <laughs> if you don't want to explode. Am I right, ladies? Yes, that's yeah. exactly it. Okay. Uh, so they blame the Mont Blanc, their captain. Mm-hmm. They blame Francis Mackey. And they blame Commander F. Evan Wyatt, who was the Royal Canadian Navy's chief examining officer in charge of the harbor, gates, and anti-submarine defenses. You know what I just thought of? All those guys survived, right? They could be put on yep. trial. Okay. Exactly. Well, that must have been satisfying. And the the rec commissioner's opinion is, mm-hmm. quote, it was the Mont Blanc's responsibility alone to ensure that she avoided a collision at all costs, end quote. <laughs> Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That reads super well. <clears throat> well, it's it's her own fault. She shouldn't have been there. Uh, she should not have been floating in the water like that. Nope. Okay. Uh, now, it is it is pretty much uh, ag- ag- agreed that this is because there was a lot of anti-French sentiment going on right now. Mm-hmm. All three men were charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence. Mm-hmm. However... Finally, somebody with some sanity caught on to it, and in the Nova Scotia Supreme Court, Justice Benjamin Russell found that there was no evidence to even support the charges. Oh, boy. Okay. Everybody got the charges dismissed, 
And in the one trial that went to a jury, the jury acquitted F. Evan Wyatt in a trial that lasted less than a day. Uh, <laughs> That's was... when the jury is like, we should not me? be here. <laughs> yep. We have stuff to do. We'll stay um, for lunch, but that is it. Is, is lunch provided? Okay, we'll stay for lunch. It is when you're on a jury. They give you lunch, yeah. Yeah, that's very nice. Um, so, that's probably why uh, it took a day instead of 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, there was civil lit- litigation where um, the the Mont Blanc uh, sued the emo and the emo sued the Mont Blanc. Nobody wins. Everybody loses. Finally, mm-hmm. in 1958, actually, Mackey issued a statement telling CBC Radio, quote, Emo came out on the wrong side, broke the rules, came down the wrong side of the steamer to come down the wrong side in the narrows, comes down the wrong side again and strikes us, and then we were blamed for it, end quote. I mean, a hashtag accurate? (laughs) There's nothing that's not factual in that statement. I know, it's real bad. So then they rebuild. They rebuild Halifax. Train service gets restored. Buildings get put back up. The, the, as you mentioned, the amount of money that comes pouring in um, helps with all of that. And that is essentially the ending of the story itself. But not quite. We got a sidebar one more time. We got a sidebar for a Christmas tree. Yes, we do. I love this story so much. So in 1918, uh, the city of Halifax sent a Christmas tree to the city of Boston in thanks and remembrance for the help that the Boston Red Cross and uh, Massachusetts Public Safety Committee provided immediately after the disaster. A very, very, very nice gesture. Yes. In 1971, the Lunenburg County Christmas Trees Producers Association began a tradition of an annual donation of a large tree to Boston. The cynical part of me is like, yes, this is a great way to promote exporting your Christmas trees. It really is because but they only ever send the most beautiful Christmas they trees. They send the most gorgeous, gigantic trees. Seen. It's ridiculous. They're all like 50 feet tall. They're perfectly oh, yeah. symmetrical. They smell uh, they're, great. They're unbelievable. Yeah. And then in uh, the early 1990s, the Nova Scotia government actually took that over and continues it as a goodwill gesture to promote trade and tourism. The tree is always Boston's official Christmas tree. It is always placed in Boston Common during the holiday season. And there are actually specific guidelines for selecting this tree overseen by the Nova Scotia Department of Natural Resources. And they have a specific employee, part of whose job description is selecting that tree. You know that person never messes it up because every time I've gone down to (laughs) Boston Common in the holiday season, it's always the most beautiful tree I've ever seen. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. So, good job, specific employee. Exactly. One of the last surviving eyewitnesses mm-hmm. was a woman named Kay McLeod Chapman. She was five years old at the time of the, dis- of the disaster. Her entire house uh, fell apart around her while oh. she was playing a pretend game of Sunday school with her dolls. She was holding a Bible and a hymn book in her hands. So her hands were ruined, but her eyes were saved. Oh, my gosh. She finally, she finally died in New Brunswick in 2017 at the age of 105. Holy moly. She got yep. an extra 100 years after that. Yes, she did. <laughs> that is amazing. And that is uh, the story of the Halifax explosion. It is still the largest 
non-nuclear man-made explosion? I had to look this up because I was like, nah, we've passed it since then. The next closest was a military ammunition explosion in 1944 in Staffordshire, United Kingdom. Yeah, we actually do want to cover that someday because that is also a wild story, but... Yep, that was two kilotons of TNT. The Halifax explosion was nearly three. So I think what we learned uh, from this episode is not (laughs) to store your gun cotton with your benzene and your TNT. I mean, it makes sense. I think what we learned in this is don't drive like an idiot. I mean, can we say that? Like... (laughs) No, because they were acquitted. (laughs) Don't drive on the wrong side of the road way over the speed limit and then blame the other guy for you crashing into them. Like, it's ridiculous. Anyway. All right. That was a lot of research. Thank you. That was was a lot I didn't know, actually, about that story. Oh, cool. Cool. Although we give you a slightly exaggerated credential at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography will be available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. Oh, somebody's going to email us on this one. Uh, You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. I know there's a lot more to this story that we didn't get to cover, but that's how it goes. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Well, we're back on the water next week. Oh, goody. We are going to talk about the Lake Pedwar disaster, which is the largest... uh, (laughs) We're not going to call it a natural disaster. We're going to call it an industrial accident in uh, the state of Louisiana. Okay. You'll be interested in this one. It is the absolute worst of a oil drill collapse, a mining disaster, and a sinkhole. So At at the same time? No, it was a cascade of events. We'll get into it. Uh, It's going to be a beautiful timeline. (laughs) That sounds like an amazing disaster, and I can't wait to talk about it with you.